0: Hey everybody, before we get started today, we want to make sure everyone knows about our upcoming live shows. First up, Holly will be at Salt Lake Comic Con September 21st through 23rd. I won't be able to make it to that one, so past guest and friend of the show, Brian Young, will be talking with her about Lon Chaney. Then, on October 6th at 9.30 p.m., we will be appearing as part of New York Comic Con Presents, and we'll be talking about the first comic book. You can find out more information on all of this, ticket links, everything like that, if you go to mistinhistory.com. And click the link that says live shows. Welcome to
1: Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowstuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. So, Holly, you and I have been hosts of the show for a little over four Four years now. Is that all? Coming
1: up (laughs) on five, actually.
0: (laughs) Now that I think about it, some patterns have emerged in the the comments that we get when we share stories on particular topics over those uh, coming up on five years, like mentioning Paul Revere prompts comments about Sybil Luddington, who we talked about in six more impossible episodes, uh, posts about George Gordon, Lord Byron, usually get replies about his daughter, Ada Lovelace, who has also been the subject of a past episode. Um, anytime we post anything about the Wright brothers, we get lots of comments about other people who are not the Wright brothers who we should be talking about.
1: Yeah. Various levels from hey, did you know about to you're horrible and you ignored these important people. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So one reason for all these Wright Brothers comments is that the Wright Brothers Firsts has a lot of qualifiers yeah. on it. Uh, people flew in balloons well before the Wrights took to the air in a plane. There were a lot of gliders uh, before them as well as including ones that they designed while they were working toward powered flight. Powered dirigibles also predate powered airplanes. And there were also a lot of heavier than air airplanes that managed to get up off the ground but not necessarily in a way that you could describe as flying.
1: (laughs) Falling with style. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) So when people say that the Wright brothers were first, in quotation marks, uh, there's there's a series of very particular circumstances we're talking about. We're talking about an aircraft heavier than air that achieved a sustained and controlled and self-powered flight with a person on board, all that stuff together. And really, a lot of these distinctions are kind of arbitrary. There's also some legitimate conversation to be had about just how controlled the, the White Wright brothers' first flights really were. Uh, there was some careening involved in some cases. So we're going to talk about all of that today uh, and some of the other folks who come up pretty often as people who maybe should be considered to have flown before the Wright brothers. And we're going to say right from the beginning that all the men that we're talking about today we're all really remarkable in their own way, regardless of whether we get to say first before their achievement. And we also want to know that even though the people that we're talking about today are all men, uh, we have a whole women in aviation tag on our website that has lots of groundbreaking female aviators as well. We are not leaving them out,
1: but we're going to start just as a level set with the Wright brothers. So even among people who agree that they were first, there is still something to disagree on. And that's whether Ohio, where the Wright brothers were from, or North Carolina, where they refined their glider designs and took their first powered flight, should get most of the credit. Whether this interstate disagreement is good-natured or not really depends on who you ask. And both states have references to flight and the Wright brothers flyer on their license plates and their state quarters.
0: So the Wright brothers started experimenting with flight in the late 1890s. Wilbur wrote to the Smithsonian in 1899 to ask for all the prior research that they had on it, saying that he was, quote, an enthusiast, but not a crank. Overall, though, you know, aside from talking to the Smithsonian and whatnot, they were comparatively quiet about what they were doing.
1: Other innovators, including Samuel Langley of the Smithsonian, were making very public attempts at flight. And it was actually Langley that the Smithsonian first supported as being able to claim first flight status. The Wright brothers, on the other hand, were tinkering, refining, and learning from their mistakes, all without a lot of fanfare. This would become doubly true after their first successful flight, at which point they became very secretive, especially once they were embroiled in a patent war over their flight control system.
0: So the Wright brothers chose the Outer Banks of North Carolina as their testing ground because the constant wind helped with the lift. They first refined the gliders that they were working on until they were satisfied with their aerodynamics, and then they turned their attention to power, developing a lightweight gasoline engine... Uh, and a propeller. The end result was the 605-pound, 11.81-horsepower flyer, which they tried to use for a powered, controlled flight with a person on board on December 14, 1903.
1: This attempt at Kill Devil Hills with Wilbur flying did not go well. Uh, Rather than creating a wheeled undercarriage, they launched the flyer from a wooden rail, which it traveled down on a wheeled dolly. On December 14th, Wilbur climbed too sharply after leaving that rail, and the flyer stalled and crashed.
0: They had it repaired in time for another attempt on December 17th, 1903. And at about 1035 in the morning, Orville made a brief and, as we noted at the top of the show, somewhat careening, 120-foot or 36-meter flight. Stayed aloft for about 12 seconds. They had set up a camera ahead of time, and John T. Daniels activated the shutter to take the now-famous picture of the flyer aloft with Wilbur running alongside of it.
1: They tried three more times that day, taking turns, with their best attempt being their last of the afternoon. Wilbur flew 859 feet, that's about 262 meters, in just under a minute. Then the flyer pitched and, in Orville's words, quote, darted into the ground. They sent their father a telegram that night to tell him the news.
0: Unfortunately, back in their base camp, a gust of wind flipped the flyer over and wrecked it. And at that point, it was too badly damaged to be easily repaired. So that put a temporary end to their attempts at flight.
1: The Wrights kept refining and improving their designs from there, testing and making adjustments as they went. On October 5th, 1905, they flew 38 kilometers near Dayton, Ohio in the Wright Flyer 3. This was its own type of first, a flight measured in kilometers instead of meters, was a feat at the time.
0: Next, we are going to talk about perhaps the Wright's most fanciful challenger. This was self-taught French engineer and aviator Clément Adair. He was born on February 4th, 1841. And like a lot of the other early aviators, he got his start with ballooning. He made his first heavier-than-aircraft in 1873, which was pulled on a tether, kind of like a kite, he also studied birds and bats, and they would go on to influence his aircraft designs.
1: Adair's first powered aircraft was a monoplane that he named Aeol, after Aeolus of Greek mythology. And he was granted a patent for it on August eleventh, 1890. On October 9th of 1890, it left the ground and moved about 165 feet. That's about 50 meters. But this wasn't really so much a flight as it was a hop. He'd successfully made a vessel that could go in the air and come back down, but it couldn't stay in the air in any sort of meaningful way.
0: Adair claimed he made another, more successful attempt in September of the following year, although historians generally doubt that that one actually happened. In
1: 1892, Adair was granted a subsidy from the French Minister of War to work on another aircraft. The result, after a couple of iterations, was the Avion 3. Another monoplane with twin 20-horsepower steam engines with foot pedals to control the rudder, the rear wheels, and the speed of the propellers. There was also a crank that could change the positioning of the wings. This aircraft never
0: really made it off the ground. On October 12, 1897, it traveled around a circular track in Satori, France, but it never really lifted off. It did briefly come off the track during a test on October fourteenth, but it didn't remain airborne. This was... You could imagine as, like, if something hit a, hit a bump mm-hmm. and sort of leapt up in the air, it was that Whee! level of, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because this project was being funded by the Ministry of War, the government had a representative witnessing these tests. And that general's assessment that witnessed them was that, though the Avion 3 had not successfully flown, those tests should continue. The Ministry of War disagreed, and it cut its losses at 65,000 francs. The Avion 3 eventually made its way to Musée des Arts et Métiers in Paris. But in 1906, Alberto Santos Dumont, who we are going to talk about next, made Europe's first public airplane flight. So uh,
0: Clément Adair was really frustrated that he had not gotten here first, and he started claiming that he had made a successful flight aboard the Avion 3, having gone at least 300 feet or 90 meters during those October 14th tests. He offered no substantiation for this claim, though, and it directly contradicted what the general had reported. Flight historians generally agree that this is a fabrication.
1: (laughs) Trying to get in on that... um... That sweet, sweet first money. Of all the aircraft that we're talking about today, Adair's looked the least like a conventional airplane. He fashioned his with wings patterned after a bat, and the Evian 3's propeller blades looked like feathers. It looks like uh, if a tiny race of forest creatures in a video game tried to make an airplane, which to me sounds delightful, and I wish they all looked that way.
0: It is pretty delightful. (laughs) There will be uh, a picture of it as part of the art for this on our website. So it doesn't appear that he ever actually made a successful, sustained flight. But he did succeed and innovated in other areas, including in telephone technology. He gave a demonstration of his stereo telephone device at the 1881 Paris Exposition of Electricity, and he earned a patent for it later that same year.
1: Adair died in Toulouse on March 5th, 1926.
0: So next we are going to get to another uh pretty fascinating character, That is Alberto Santos Dumont. We're going to talk about that after a break. (music) Unlike Clément Adair, who, as we said earlier, was self-taught, Alberto Santos Dumont was formally trained in physics and mechanics, as well as in chemistry and in astronomy. He was born in Brazil on July 20th, 1873, and he was the son of a wealthy coffee planter. When he was 18, he went to Paris to study.
1: He was 25 when he started experimenting with ballooning, making his first ascent in Paris on July 4th, 1898, in a balloon he had named Brazil. And he quickly started trying to figure out how to build a practical balloon that could be steered. So at that point, uh, as you may recall from our numerous episodes on ballooning, most balloons could change altitudes, but they were really at the mercy of the wind when it came to the direction of their travel.
0: Figuring out how to make a reliably steerable balloon required him to rethink basically everything from the shape of the balloon itself to the materials it was made of to the system used to steer to the engine used to drive it. He wound up designing his own 3.5 horsepower gasoline powered internal combustion engine, that being one that was safe enough to use in a hydrogen filled bag of gas, which at the time was quite a feat. Like making an internal combustion engine that was, was safe enough and reliable enough to not set that bag of gas on fire
1: was a big deal. And the Santos Dumont number one, his first attempt at a steered balloon ascended on September 18th. He tinkered with the design and the Santos Dumont number three ascended on November 13th of 1890. He was able to steer it around the Eiffel Tower several times before landing.
0: On October 19, 1901, the Santos Dumont Number no. Six took off from Saint Cloud, circled the Eiffel Tower, and returned in under 30 minutes. This earned the Aero Club of France's Deutsch Prize, which had been announced more than a year before in an effort to inspire aeronautical innovation. This prize, which, I mean, this was an accomplishment for sure. They basically set this prize at a 100,000 francs, which they did because they didn't think it was actually possible that anybody would pull it off. Uh, so he won that prize and distributed a quarter of it to his crew and then gave the rest of it to the Parisian poor.
1: And at first, they actually tried to deny him the prize because it took a minute and 25 seconds to secure the aircraft at the finish line, putting the trek just over that 30-minute mark. He offered to do the whole thing over again, and the judging committee ultimately reversed their decision.
0: So this was the first uh, really effective demonstration of a practical airship, previous attempts at airships had been a lot more limited than this design but after this success santos dumont decided that dirigibles were way too influenced by weather conditions to ever by weather conditions to ever become a truly workable method of transportation so he turned his attention to heavier than airplanes
1: so back in brazil he designed the 14b's or uh, if you're looking at it it's 14-bis and that's a boxy looking biplane with a 24 horsepower motor It looked boxy because it was designed from box kites. And unlike the Wright brothers, who used a wooden launching rail to become airborne, he wanted to make an aircraft that could take off under its own means. His
0: first attempt to do so in July of 1906 failed. Another attempt on September 7th barely left the ground. And then a few days later, he made it a meter off the ground. And every time he would sort of address the problems that came up, whatever he discovered that seemed like it was preventing him from reaching a successful flight, he would d- refine the design and then he would try again.
1: On October 23rd, 1906, the 14 Bees took off, traveled about 60 meters at about three feet in the air, and then landed. A flight on November 12, 1906, flew 220 meters. Both of these were, obviously, after the December 17, 1903 Wright Brothers flight. And he was, in fact, inspired by that success.
0: The reason that people point to Alberto Santos Dumont over the Wright Brothers is that this whole distinction of the wheeled undercarriage on the 14 beast versus the wooden launching rail that the Wright Flyer was using... The argument is that the Wrights flyer doesn't count because the plane relied on separate pieces to take off rather than an integrated set of wheels that were actually part uh, of the aircraft. There are also some very passionate Santos Dumont supporters who argue that the Wrights didn't fly in 1903 at all, suggesting that all their secrecy was really a cover-up and that their continued use of a launching rail was evidence that they had never really perfected their earlier designs. So I don't know if I would go so far as to say that's accurate, but in terms of this was a self-contained aircraft that took off under its own power rather than using a launching rail, I got it my opinion is that actually has some merit.
1: Yeah. Santos Dumont didn't stop with the 14B's. He went on to design the Demoiselle or Dragonfly, a practical light aircraft and he published the plans for anyone to use to build their own.
0: But in 1910, he was seriously hurt in a plane crash, and that led to him having a number of ongoing physical issues, and it kept him from ever flying again. He had also genuinely, passionately loved flight, and he was terribly dismayed at the growing use of aircraft in warfare. And he was especially upset by it because he felt like he was personally responsible. There had been so many developments in aviation that were either his or that built off of work that he had done And in addition to the lingering effects of the 1910 crash, he also became seriously ill. He died by suicide on July 23rd, 1932.
1: In addition to the aviation awards he earned during his lifetime, he was a charismatic showman who became something of a celebrity. Contemporary accounts also describe him as flamboyant and somewhat feminine, and there's been some speculation about what his sexual orientation might have been. Today, he is still a highly revered figure in Brazil, known as the father of the Brazilian Air Force. Multiple roads and schools, as well as the town he was born in, have been named after him.
0: Now we will move on to Richard Pierce, who for our first year or so on the show was the person most often mentioned when we brought up the Wright brothers. He was a New Zealand aviation pioneer born on December 3rd, 1877. He was a mostly self-taught inventor and farmer, and he was granted his first patent in 1902 for a new style of bicycle that used pedals that you pushed up and down rather than in a circle. He invented a lot of other devices, too, including a potato planter and a needle threader.
1: I'm thinking about what it would be like to ride a bike where you had to push the pedals up and down. It's kind of like a Stairmaster bike. That seems <laughs> seems sort of mean, but probably not. Uh, he was also working on ideas for powered flight. His first airplane design was a low-profile monoplane made of bamboo, wire, canvas, and steel tubing. On his first attempt to fly it, he took off from the road adjacent to his farm on the South Island. He flew 50 yards or so, and then he crashed into a gorse fence.
0: So there were some witnesses to this flight, it definitely happened, but the details aren't recorded in any kind of official account, so there has been a whole lot of debate about exactly when this flight happened. Pierce was a bit of a loner, he never married, there weren't really people that he talked to day to day about his work, and he also didn't keep a lot of written records or notes. In most cases, when it comes to things that he worked on, patent applications are the only remaining documentation of what he was doing. And this is also why we have way less to share about his process than most of the other aviators we're talking about today.
1: Much later, in 1915 and 1918, he wrote two different letters in which he remembered the flying having happened in February or March of 1904. Researchers reconstructed various bits of eyewitness testimony to arrive at a date of March 31st, 1903, although some have also argued that it was actually in 1902.
0: And this is why, for the first year or so after we joined the show, he was the person so often uh, cited as a, a counter-argument to the Wright brothers. However, in 2014, while doing, while doing research for a book on Pierce, aviation historian Errol Martin found an old article published in the Timaru Post on November 17th of 1909. And in this article, Pierce himself contradicts the idea that he was flying anywhere close to the time that the Wright brothers did. As he said to the reporter, quote, I did not attempt anything practical with the idea until in 1904, the St. Louis exposition authorities offered a prize of $20,000 to the man who invented and flew a flying machine over a specified course. I did not, as you know, succeed in winning the prize. Neither did anybody.
1: He went on to describe some tests of the machine that he was currently working on, a comparatively lightweight craft powered by a 25-horsepower engine that he had designed himself, along with the rest of the plane's components.
0: Even the tests that he described to this reporter were more like hops than true sustained flight. And uh, Errol Martin suspected that the reason that the 1902 or 1903 date persisted for as long as it did was because people were looking for substantiation that that flight occurred somewhere around that time, not six or seven years later. Pierce himself also said that he didn't fly before the Wright brothers uh, and that he became motivated to work on his own aircraft after their successes. So the counter argument that we've heard most often in response to uh, Richard Pierce saying that he had not beaten the Wright brothers was that he was just being nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He may have been lovely. (laughs) He may have just been being nice,
0: but like that's not a very substantive counter argument. Right.
1: Uh, And Pierce died in Christchurch on July 29th, 1953
0: most of the other men we've talked about today wound up influencing the greater field of aviation in some way, regardless of whether their attempts at controlled, powered, Flight were really all that successful. And this was less true for Richard Pierce, but it was only because being in New Zealand put him really far away from where most of that work was happening. His plane, though, was pretty sophisticated for the time. It had wing flaps, a rear elevator, and a wheeled steerable undercarriage and a propeller with variable pitch blades. Because he was so physically removed from most of the other people physically doing this work, though, not a lot of people who were trying to come up with workable aircraft actually saw it or got to learn from it.
1: Yeah, it makes you wonder if he were closer to those people, if his innovations wouldn't have accelerated the development of flight in a very serious way. And for a time after his death, Pierce's work was nearly forgotten. Fortunately, knowledge of his efforts did survive. An auctioneer offered his last plane to the Canterbury Aero Club, and aviation engineer George Bolt later bought it and donated it to the Museum of Transport and Technology in Auckland, where a replica is now part of their collection. Although it seems unlikely that Pierce achieved true, sustained flight in his aircraft, modern replicas powered with ultralight aircraft engines have been capable of flight
0: we're going to take one more quick sponsor break before we talk about our last first flight, which was uh, by Gustav Whitehead. So in a weird little irony... Gustav Whitehead is not the name who is most often tossed out when we mention the Wright brothers, but he is the aviation pioneer who has gotten a lot of the most first-in-flight attention in recent years, particularly in the United States. He was born on January 1st, 1874, and immigrated to the United States from Bavaria. He settled in Connecticut and changed his surname to Whitehead from Weisskopf.
1: The idea that Whitehead might have flown first has come up periodically since the 19-teens. And the most recent big wave of attention uh, came in 2013. And that's when editor Paul Jackson endorsed the idea that the credit should go to Whitehead in the centennial edition of Jane's All the World's Aircraft. Australian John Brown launched the website gustav-whitehead.com that same year, laying out various pieces of evidence that Whitehead was the first to fly, including what's purportedly a piece of photographic evidence. So here are
0: the claims. On August 18th, 1901 the Bridgeport Sunday Herald reported that Whitehead had made a half-mile flight four days before, on August 14th, aboard a very bird-like monoplane known as Number 21. And as still happens today, other publications picked up this story and mirrored it in their own pages without doing any additional reporting of their own on it. This report listed two men as having helped Whitehead in this effort, and those were James Dickey and Andrew Seeley.
1: In an article in American Inventor published April 1st, 1902, Whitehead himself also claimed to have flown for several miles over Long Island on January 17th of that year. He claimed that flight and another shorter one took place on the same day.
0: From there, Whitehead made a failed bid to enter an aircraft in the aeronautical competition at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis in 1904. That was the same one that Richard Pierce referenced in his 1909 newspaper interview. Whitehead built several other aircraft between 1906 and 1909, none of which ever apparently flew. When a Scientific American reporter visited him in 1903, he was actually working on a glider and not on a powered aircraft.
1: There were doubts about his claims, even at the time. A much different article appeared in the Bridgeport Evening Farmer in 1902, titled, Unrealized Dreams, Last Flop of the Whitehead Flying Machine. It detailed the various gripes of Whitehead's financial backer, Herman Lindy, who had invested $6,000 in two machines and was disappointed in the fact that neither of them could actually fly. The Bridgeport Post published a similar critical article on the same day.
0: Whitehead died on October tenth, nineteen 1927. And then in the 1930s, somebody stumbled over that initial article that had reported that he had a successful flight. So people started trying to track down confirmation of whether he had flown or not. Andrew Seely could not be located, when he wasn't listed in any local directories. They did, however, find James Dickey, who not only said he had not witnessed the flight, but also said he was not even there, he did not know any Andrew Seeley, and he had never even heard of any flight in that or any other Whitehead aircraft. When an interviewer tracked him down in 1936, he said, quote, I believe the entire story of the Herald was imaginary and grew out of the comments Whitehead discussing what he hoped to get from his plane.
1: It's also impossible to go back and review Whitehead's notes and schematics to try to replicate his aircraft and see if it actually worked, because he didn't leave any. A few photographs do exist of his 1901 machine, although all of those show it on the ground and not in the air. No photograph is known to exist of the machine that purportedly flew several miles in 1902, and no photographs exist of one of his aircraft in flight. There are photos of an unpowered glider, as well as one that was flown without a person aboard.
0: This new, in quotation marks, photo evidence that was alluded to in 2013 is a really heavily enlarged detail of an exhibition that was shown at the Aero Club of America in January 1906. This vastly zoomed in on picture shows a white blob shaped roughly like one of Whitehead's airplanes when viewed from above.
1: People looking to support Whitehead's claims did interview a number of witnesses between 1934 and 1974. However, their statements contradict one another, or they're demonstrably false. And at least one of them was paid to give that story. All of those statements were documented at least 30 years after the flight purportedly took place. And meanwhile, his family, employers, financial backers, and other people who were working in the field of aeronautics at the time generally agree that none of his planes ever left the ground.
0: Yeah, accurately reconstructing exactly when something happened 30 years or more after it happened, when there's not anything actually written down about it to jog your memory, that's kind of a tall order. So, in 2013... The Smithsonian published a number of lengthy rebuttals of all the various Whitehead evidence. And then Scientific American did as well, refuting Whitehead supporters' use of its own past reporting as support for their claims. So people basically were pointing to old Scientific American articles being like, well, right there, it says <laughs> that he flew. And then Scientific American was like, actually, that's not what it says.
1: Supporters often claim that the only reason that the Smithsonian won't seriously consider the possibility of Whitehead beating the Wright brothers to powered flight is that the contract they signed for the flyer specifies that they won't display a challenge to the Wright brothers' claim to be first. But as quoted in The Economist, aeronautics curator Tom Crouch said, quote, Should persuasive evidence for a prior flight be presented, my colleagues and I would have the courage and honesty to admit the new evidence and risk the loss of the right flyer. This whole
0: disagreement (laughs) did basically lead Ohio and North Carolina to put aside their differences and basically both say not Connecticut, though. (laughs) One of the things that gets pointed to a lot in this whole thing is like, look at how many other articles say this happened. They can't all be wrong, but like, they're all articles that are spawned from one account.
1: Yeah, they're all
0: reporting one article, which continues to be an issue in media today. (laughs) when one thing will come out and a bunch of other people will re-report that one thing without doing any additional reporting on their own and then like there's now there's a story that's false and everyone believes it uh do you have some listener mail kind of uh, i more have an update okay uh an update on our our uh episode about the HL Hunley which literally just came out yeah um because <laughs> The day after it came out, people started letting us know that the Friends of the Hunley had issued a press release related to the research that we talked about in it. Um, This is an issue where less than 24 hours after our episode came out, new information came out about it, which doesn't really happen all that often. No, On a history podcast.
1: Sometimes we'll get Um, like a month or two later, but that day after thing was just uncanny.
0: Yeah, and uh, it was vexatious not only for that reason, um, because basically what the press release from the Friends of the Hunley does is that it uh, states that Dr. Rachel Lance's research is incorrect. Uh, They said that they considered and rejected a blast wave as the cause of death for the crew quite a while ago um, and say that Dr. Lance did not have access to all of their data to frame her own work when she was doing that research but so all of this is kind of frustrating because it doesn't actually give any detail about why they have um, why they had previously said that a blast uh, a blast wave was not the cause of the death for the people aboard the Humley. So the other really frustrating thing about this press release besides the fact that it basically boils down to just saying uh uh is that it describes Dr. Lance as a student even though she earned her Ph.D. last year and she submitted her paper to Plus One after she had that Ph.D. So it did grow out of Ph.D. dissertation research that she was doing while she was a student, but it was part of her Ph.D. dissertation and not like an informal school project. So the framing of it in this press release makes it sound like she was maybe an undergrad and this was some kind of casual activity that she embarked on. Um, And it's clear from a lot of the comments on the Facebook post where the Friends of the Hunley shared this press release initially that a lot of people definitely read it that way. Like, there's a lot of really patronizing, oh, it's cute that the student did some kind of project on this, but obviously that's not right. Um, uh, They also uh, originally called it fake news, which, in addition to being incorrect, is a really politically loaded term at this point. So, I wanted to number one say, okay, that development happened <laughs> less than a day after our uh, our episode came out. But I also, it's really important to note that having your work scrutinized and assessed by other people is an important part of science. Uh, people make errors, and peer review is not foolproof. So, a retesting a, a hypothesis to confirm whether it's correct like that's a critical part of the scientific method but that's also not really what was happening with this press release the the press release the the most of the detail was just no it wasn't and not actual uh discussion of her methods or conclusions or anything like that so at this point on the one hand we have a paper that was submitted to a journal that shows all of her work and acknowledges its own limitations and then on the other hand we have a press release saying basically not that's not right without giving any detail about why that's not right. So, I'm uh, just going to say, if folks want to, you know, refute these findings or do additional research, great. That is part of science and discovering things. Uh, but it was highly frustrating to um, have this this press release basically offer no detail and then also frame the whole thing in a pretty patronizing and dismissive way
1: it reads really dismissively and it mischaracterizes her work which is that's one of those things that just gets my hackles up Uh (laughs) Like, like it's fine to contradict people but you can't like mischaracterize them in a way that favors you even though you have no evidence right you know just by trying to like undermine their credibility
0: Well, and they may have evidence. They just didn't share what that evidence was. Um, There's a link to the most recent uh, uh, research that's been done um, by, I think it was the Navy, using data from the Friends of the Hunley and their whole project. But that report came out before this paper did. So it is also not a refutation of what's in the paper because it's not like it came out before the paper. It doesn't... It doesn't say here is why this paper is incorrect or whatever. Uh, so anyway, that that was irksome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, when something happens less than 24 hours after your show that came out about it, you, sometimes you got to do a little update uh, after a surprisingly short period of time. Uh, also, apparently, at some point in that episode, we said something like 1926 when we really went meant 1826. Sometimes we misspeak.
1: Numbers are tricky for me. Like I'm—that is what I am most likely to ever just blurt out the wrong thing—is a, a year or a yeah. date.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you as you and I were recording the episode today that we recorded one time. I said November when the piece of paper clearly <laughs> said October. So
1: we have all been there. Uh,
0: yeah, we misspeak sometimes. Um, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at HistoryPodcasts at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at in History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And our Pinterest and our Instagram are both also at in History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes of all of the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on together. Those are now for our newest episodes. They're part of the actual episode player page. So all that stuff is all there together. Uh, And on the episode player page for this episode, you will also see photos of most of the aircraft we have talked about uh, there in the the cover art for that particular episode. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.